Well, Father, I do thank you for uh, just the friendships forged and strengthened uh, during the mealtime. We thank you just for the awesome hospitality shown to us by the ladies. And, and we pray that as we kind of engage in some of these questions, um, that this will just be a really uh, a helpful time as we talk about uh, what does it mean to operate a church as family. We just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, that cheesecake left no room for oxygen in my body. It's just like, oh man, I'll be thinking about that for a long time. So, but yeah, you're going to think I have good posture. I just can't lean over. That's right. That's right. It was, it was quite delicious. But um, again, we have some great questions here. I want to introduce you to our third panelist. This is John Wernley. Uh, John, you want to tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my wife is Maria. We have three children. Uh, they're believers. have eight grandchildren, four from this particular family. Married uh, our second oldest, uh, second daughter. Mm -hmm. And the best, you said? Yep. They're all good. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been, ministry wise, I've been an elder here for a number of years and and love the Iron Men Summit and, and men's ministry and pastoral ministry. And yeah. And what was your day job back during those days? Day job when? Well, you're a commodity oh, my commodity? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was an agriculture commodities broker for 34 years. Uh-huh. Yeah. Also now, in the cattle business. And yeah. And now that you're retired, you kind of live at the church. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, love biblical counseling, so uh, do do quite a bit of that. Yeah, that's one of the passions. Well, um, the first uh, question I thought I'd kind of throw out is, how do you familyify the church? Like, how do you really kind of create a culture, a family? Um, I mean, what are some things, like, John, that you've seen at our church that have been helpful for that? So I think the, uh, the Bible, we have a high emphasis on Bible studies. That's a high priority for our discipleship, and, uh -huh. and those are very family-oriented. Uh, we have men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, uh, there's nothing like studying the Word of God and, and being uh, in, in community with men and, or women and just uh, opening God's Word and learning from it and teaching you know, one another the commandments and teaching to obey those commandments. So I think that, that's a, a great thing. Uh, the ministry, this, our church puts a high emphasis on hospitality. Uh -huh. And uh, years ago, we... Um, came across kind of a novel idea. If you've been in our church here, we have what's called fellowship time. So about halfway through, we some people call it halftime. We will uh, um, we'll take a break, and we call it fellowship time, and it's a 10 or 15-minute time in which we uh, try to engage one another and meet one another. And it kind of came out and of... We and we have food available, too. We have food I available. Mean, it's like yeah. cheese balls, donuts, cookies, I mean, the works. Some of the early days, we would be so aggressive, we'd like do fresh crepes and waffles. And wow, that was, that was before my time. Why did that stop? It was stop? just, a, you, you were a year too, too okay. late for that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it kind of came out of the idea of, uh, I remember some of us elders talking like the way we were doing it before. New people would be at your church or even people that were regulars, and you'd see the back of their head. And church was over with, and they'd leave. And you really never had that face-to-face -face time. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't any relationship there. It was just kind of like coming, putting in their time. So we developed this concept of, of fellowship time. And I think that's really been yeah. good at, at developing family uh, in our church. 
I think also we uh, we called it three by threes at one time. We'd have three families who meet, would meet three times uh, once a month for three months just to foster relationships. We still do that, but we just mix people up. You're with a different group each time, and you do it three times a year. You'll have a, a meal in people's homes, mm-hmm. um, go out to eat together. Uh, another thing that we, we did that I think's really helped the familyization or more of a family, years ago we would not have – people would not give their testimony uh, before baptism. But at some point we said, you know, that would be a good thing for everybody to hear the testimony, not just the elders or pastors. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really been helpful because it seems like you know that person as a result of hearing uh, their testimony of conversion and faith, and that helps everyone feel like part Mm -hmm. of the family. Yeah. So there are some things. You've probably got some others you could add, Dave as well yeah i mean it's kind of a difficult thing where i think you can talk about doing this program or this program or this program and i think brett Capranica, i remember when you talked about evangelism instead of talking about strategy it's kind of the culture of evangelism you know where sometimes out of the culture these things kind of just spring up and some of the dynamics of our church as far as including people weren't even our ideas they just happened like we had a um Kind of a situation um, a number of years ago where a homeschooling mom of seven got cancer, um, did not survive it, and all the women of the church rallied around to kind of form this new entity to homeschool her children with all of our other children too. And so that kind of morphed into what's called Portico, which is a homeschooling co-op where on any given Monday we have maybe 90 kids here and 20 different moms educating each other's kids. And so what that's happened is um, these moms feel very responsible for other people's children. Does that make sense? And so that wasn't something where um, we thought to build a family culture, let's do a homeschooling co-op. It's kind of like the need arose. It kind of bled into some of the cultures and the values of our church and some of those things kind of sprang up, if that makes sense. But I think, you know, from the top when I got here, the elders were very engaged in um, the lives of the people, and they really were part of the family. Um, And so I think that's kind of how it developed. Um, And I think along the way, certain opportunities came up. But here's a question, and I didn't ask you guys this. On one hand, I mean, we want to have like a family-oriented culture, right, where the church comes together as a family. On the other hand, you want to be hospitable. And like welcome new people. And one of the tensions I think that can often happen, like you go to church and you want to see your family and you only have so much time. If you talk to this new person, you don't spend time having this relationship being built. Does that make sense? How, how do you navigate that? I know I just sprang it on you. Josh? <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, that's a great question because every now and then it'll hit me that there's a person I see that's been coming for three months. I haven't even met them. Mm-hmm. And then you feel this weight. But it's like, but I know this family's going through something. I got to see them this week. So uh, I don't really have a great answer in the sense of how to balance it well. But there are people that I know I'm going to see at other events, things mm-hmm. through the week 
that it's okay if I miss them at this one because I'll see them Tuesday morning at men's Bible study or I'll see them Sunday night when we have our care group. And so it's easier to give time to somebody I may not see over here or some visitor. Um, it's hard for me to get to visitors because when I come down, there's usually one or two, sometimes three people that will want to ask something. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to get my time. Um, but, yeah, I want to I see my family, my spiritual family. I also want to be hospital, like you're saying. And my wife sometimes will just suggest, hey, we need to get these three couples over for dinner. We'll just get them over. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to, like, how to familyify the church and things like that, it's teaching on it, but also just doing it mm -hmm. and modeling. There was, there was one time we had three couples over. They were all members, and we were trying to encourage our people to invite more people over. And one guy just said out loud in front of dinner, he said, are you doing it? I was like, doing what? And he said, is this hospitality? Like, we're doing it right now? And he's in his 50s. I was like, yeah, this is it. He goes, oh. He looked at his wife and was like, this isn't that bad. We can do this. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, um, so, yeah, teaching on it and doing it. No. So I... I to go back to your question, I don't have like a bulletproof answer. It's yeah. week by week for me. I would add anything to that, John. We have these conversations as leaders, right? Like uh -huh. uh, we prioritize meeting new people or people that have been maybe here for a month or two. So we may uh, be having a conversation with our family and see someone, and we will uh, break that conversation off and, and go have uh, those conversations. Uh, Conversations that might may not be our priority or something we'd like to do. We'd love to be around our family. It's easy to talk to. They fill us up, but uh, that's what we're here for. So, yeah, we have to have that mindset. Now, Dave, you've ha you have that. You scan the congregation, oh, yeah. and you identify those new people, and you're going to seek those out. So yeah. don't I don't try to get time with Dave on Sunday morning. Yeah. You know, get we'll out of do, my way. There's yeah, a new we'll, person. We'll do that later yeah. in the week. So at least that's our mindset among the leadership. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's helpful, like if you talk to a new person, you find out they like horseback riding. Well, I know Steve likes horseback riding. Let me introduce you to Steve. Oh, you're a caller? Let me introduce So a lot of it is just kind of helping people meet. I think, you know, the part of you know, the family of God is, is not just our family. We just understand that there's a greater family out there. And there's some long-lost brothers and sisters waiting to be discovered, right? And so that's why it's not about just new people, it's about assimilating long-lost relatives into the family and giving them a path to do so. But as far as like when you're looking at family members, one of the questions is, what are some ways you intentionally shepherd each member of your flock? Uh, for, for me, my main priority would be preaching. That's my widest audience, my most regular ministry. That's the, that's the best disciple-making thing that I have going um, and then you have men's Bible study but uh, again to be a practical so two of our lay elders over here we meet every Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. it's just the way it works with our families we'll have really young kids so we'd rather lose mornings than evenings but mm -hmm. we meet every week and each week is designated for a certain issue and the first Wednesday of every month is our prayer time for our church and so each month um, each elder will get three member units, so it, it'll be a, a married couple or you know three single guys or whatever. So we've got a month to reach out to them, get prayer requests from them. So we'll ask them. I'm trying to do it without looking at my notes. Well, we've done it for years. Um, how are you doing spiritually? Uh, what truth or passage have you come across that's encouraged you lately? 
Um, what's the third one? How are your relationships in the church? And then the new one, when we canceled Sunday school, is how can we help you uh, with family worship at home? So those questions get asked to each member, and it takes us a while to get through the list, but you've got four guys with three couples each month, and our church knows we're doing that. So mm-hmm. that's a very helpful way to keep yeah. tabs on some people we may never see, even though they're members. Yeah, what about you, John? I think the first thing I thought of was like Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Uh, him we proclaim, uh, teaching and admonishing everyone that we may bring them to maturity in Christ. So I think um, <clears throat> just that is our focus. And that teaching is, whether it's through the pulpit or Sunday school classes or men's Bible studies or one-on-one counseling, shepherding, we're teaching, we're admonishing, we're uh, with the, you know, the goal of bringing someone to greater maturity in Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, as shepherds, pastors, we, we're, we're connecting dots, we're observing our sheep, we're listening in conversations, and we're picking up on, oh, there might be something going on here, maybe I need to inquire into that. So mm-hmm. that's kind of sheep-specific, um, but just listening, uh, asking some questions, watching our sheep, oftentimes well, leads to shepherding opportunities. And you were talking about just how we delegate some of it like to women's ministries? Yeah, like in this church, we have four elders. Uh, that's probably not quite as many as maybe would be expected of a church four to 500, but we have, uh, we have excellent women's ministries here, uh, mature women, and so there's a lot of, of shepherding, uh, personal shepherding going on, like yeah. at the Portico, the school you were talking about, uh, the women's Bible studies. So a lot of, a lot of that happens yeah, with them. Yeah, and I think sometimes when you have a have a bigger church, it's some of the there has to be more delegation. So we have a Sunday school program. Uh, no offense, but no you know, <laughs> but we have people who drive in an hour to come to our church, and so they go to Sunday school, they go to the service, and then out to lunch, and uh, so we don't have an evening service. So we want to give them their money's worth, right? If we're going to make that kind of drive, and then we have Sunday, we have different. Um, Bible studies throughout the week, and a lot of what we do is try to push people into those opportunities. You know, the the next step is the small group. The next step is the is the Sunday school. So I think trying to encourage people in that end. I think we found too that kind of like your church, Josh. Um, after the service, you have that that fellowship time. It's not uncommon for our people to there still be people at our church like at close to an hour after. Yeah. Uh, the sermon's over with. Unless the chiefs are playing, then it's, it's short. That's true. Yeah, you can usually tell. Yeah. But there's a lot of shepherding that goes on on at that time. Yeah. And I think people know, um, I mean, part of like our real emphasis on biblical counseling is equipping our flock to minister to the needs of other people. Um, that we don't have to be the ones to shepherd them. We just want to make sure that they're growing spiritually. By the way, if you guys have... you. Feel free to raise your hand if you want to do a follow-up question or anything, too. I didn't make that clear. So something strikes you in the moment, raise your hand. We'll get to you as well. Um, So what responsibility do pastors have to press a decision about joining as a member? Especially, let's say, somebody's been attending for for two years. When do you just sit down and and have your come-to-Jesus conversation with them? You said you're kind of reluctant to it. John, have you had... 
Yeah, I, I kind of went a different, I mean, when I heard that question, I ended up going a little different direction. I would have the conversation of, uh, at a heart level, like, you've been going to church, you said two years. Yeah, two years. Mm-hmm. And assuming that they're a believer, and there's evidence of that, and they're growing, I would I would wonder, is there a something from the past that's caused them to uh, be reluctant to submit to authority? Like, is uh-huh. there some uh, authority issue there? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I would probe that. Yeah, like, are you not becoming a member because you don't want to place yourself under the shepherding and the pastoring of, of the leadership? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a natural man, right? We resist authority. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, that's where I would go. Okay. Yeah, I didn't mean to sound like I don't talk to people about it. Um, I just don't want to pester them because, of course, the guy selling cars wants you to hurry up and buy a car. Like, that kind of feeling is what I get as a pastor. Um, So, yeah, hey, do you have any questions? Can I help you? After a time or two of that, it's a little awkward. We've got couples in our church that have been there for years and haven't joined, and there just becomes a time. It's kind of like an evangelism conversation where – I've witnessed clearly and enough to this person to where they know where I'm at. I know where they're at. I'm not going to beat them over the head every conversation. Um, so then I just pray that the other things that make it awkward would work. <laughs> like when we say, could the members of Cornerstone Bible Search please stand to welcome new members? And they don't stand. And people are like, you've been here way longer than me and you're not standing. So some of those awkward moments, I relish it. It's like, you're the one making it awkward. Like, um, not me. Uh, but at the same time, it's like I just don't want to, I don't want to push them into obligatory membership. Like we want a willing membership. Uh-huh. Part of my answer comes out of, of my age, growing up in the '60s and '70s. Like that was the anti-authoritarian type. Mike, you probably know that, and like it was almost cool not to be a member or submit to to church leadership and to anything that had structure to it. So I think that's probably frames a little bit uh, uh-huh. how I would take on a situation like that. But it definitely asks questions, yeah. like why are you not, you know, what's, what are your objections? Like I, I think it, it's helpful, like when you talk about membership, um, people, the easiest re- pushback on that is, well, membership's not in the Bible. But church commitment is. Well, and, member, membership is too. They just haven't read uh, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, members where it literally I mean. says members. But... <laughs> Well, <laughs> I didn't make this up. Like, we can call it body parts if you want to. It's just a little weird. But I'm just saying that's a normal feedback. People go, well, membership's not in the Bible. It is. Um, what they're looking for is not in the Bible. And maybe what they've heard is not in the Bible. But what we're trying to say is membership is in the Bible. Yeah. You belong to a body. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I talk about commitment. And you're... You're called to obey your leaders, for they keep watch over your soul. And so the question is, who's keeping watch over your soul? And I said, well, you are, Pastor. Well, that's like telling somebody that, you know, we're married, right? Really? I mean, both people need to know. I mean, that's kind of the way <laughs> commitment works. And the, the, the question I asked one guy, you know, well, I, I was like, you know, I'm concerned because you're shepherdless. He's like, no, you're my pastor. I was like, so what, in what functional way am I your pastor? Besides you listening to my sermons, what have I asked you to do that you said, okay, you only tell me no, mm-hmm. <laughs> except you love to come here preaching. Like that's, I'm as much your pastor as MacArthur or Piper or somebody yeah. else. I'm not your shepherd in that sense. 
Yeah. So I think that's, un- so I talk about church commitment. You're supposed to be committed to your church. God calls on you to have shepherds overseeing your soul. And it makes sense that they know and they have embraced um, that desire to do so. And if the shepherd overseeing your soul says become a member, then that's part of him doing it. But a lot of times, I mean, you can kind of talk to people about that issue, give them all the arguments. But John, you kind of mentioned some of the hard issues. You said authority is kind of one of them. But do you see other reasons why some people are just kind of like pushing people away? I think you mentioned it in your in your message yeah. about people will claim that they've been hurt by the by the church. I think a lot of those are legitimate. Uh, some of those are probably perceived hurts, but there has been uh, legitimate hurt, I'm sure, at other yeah. churches. And so that's that's probably one of the first things that I personally look out for when somebody new is coming to our church is what's been their previous experience and mm-hmm. how can we make this different for them, make this more uh, biblical. And so I think that's number one. Yeah, I'd say half to three-fourths of the people who dare come back into church after being burnt or hurt, that's probably the compelling reason. Now, one of our questions is about spiritual abuse. You know, what is it? Because, um, I mean, people use the term abuse all the time. And it's kind of like it was torture. Well, that's not torture. You know what I'm saying? Like, so we can kind of lose the meaning of it. And sometimes you can be so cynical towards any claim of spiritual abuse that the entity doesn't really exist, right? So, John, I know you've thought deeply about abuse. I mean... What's your understanding of spiritual abuse? Well, I think uh, it's misuse of power to the hurt of a soul. I mean, it's in its shortest yeah. form. Like we are, as leaders, pastors, we are to use the authority and the power that the Lord has given us for the edification, the building up, yeah. uh, the, the feeding of that soul. So anything that's different from that is, could be abusive in nature. Okay. That harms the soul, harms that person. Yeah. A misuse of power and authority. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think one thing I've seen is when church discipline has been um, misused. Um, I know of a, of a church where it wasn't even church discipline. Somebody got pregnant and had to go up and confront, or basically confess her pregnancy in front of the whole church. Why, I don't know. But you can understand, like, you know, that would be a case where um, there's a lot of shame humiliation, disguised as church discipline. And we do church discipline at our church, and some people are scared off by that. And I grew up in a church where that was commonplace. Yeah, tell them a little bit about, they probably don't know about the apostolic church. Why don't you give us a little insight? Hmm, okay. That's like. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to go down this road. Yeah, you were halfway to being Amish, right? That's probably right. Yeah. yeah. It was evangelical Baptists that came to the United States that kind of mixed in some Mennonite and Amish theology, and you had this kind of um, concoction anyway. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you triggered that when you talked about uh, spiritual abuse. I mean, if someone was, if a man was uh, caught in adultery, he was, he was shamed in front of the church. It was announced, or he had to confess in front of the church, and it was kicked out of the church, even if he was repenting and, and had yeah. legitimate change. So there was, there was misuse of, of the scriptures there. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a lot of good about that church. I mean, I, I'm not trying to 
I want to make a uh, make it look bad. Just learned a lot about how mm-hmm. um, ecclesiology and how things should be done biblically. Sometimes you learn more from bad examples than good examples, mm-hmm. uh, or you can anyway. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah. So let's say you have somebody comes from a from a church where they were truly victimized by a pastor, shamed, humiliated, clearly controlled. Um, using the word of God against them. They come to our church for refuge, um, but they're having a hard time with membership, right? Kind of a different story than somebody who's, um, you know, doesn't, you know, has that defiant attitude. But how do you, I mean, maybe give us maybe a roadmap, like how would you, in the long haul, try to help them be at a point where they're comfortable with leadership again? Warm, welcoming, mm-hmm. gracious, generous, just representing Christ and mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Um, not performance based or works based, but um, come on in. Mm-hmm. Grace, very grace laced, um, forgiving, gentle, mm-hmm. lots of, of gentleness working with people like that. We've experienced some some women recently who. I would call them refugees from some really hard situations with their husbands. And you can read them. I mean, like yeah. their their body, they look old and beat down and worn out and beaten mm-hmm. up. And so yeah. you do the opposite of that. You you care for them. You're tender with them. I'm using a lot of feeling-type words. Yeah. But that's intentional. Yeah, that's intentional. Would you add something to that, Joshua? I was just saying in those situations, Paul's description of being like a nursing mother comes to mind. It's easier to be patient with those people on why they're hesitant. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, membership is biblical, but their issue with it, you understand it more than someone who just says, "I don't like being told what to do." Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be a situation in our church where church discipline was poorly used on this person, um, and yeah, it's been years, and I've just not been able to turn the corner with them and and my thinking just personally if they're the lord's per, like lord's sheep he'll take care of them without them being a member at our church i guess you know that's the way it's going to go yeah i don't want to bend on what we're doing i also just don't want to berate them and set and make their situation that much worse like i'm watching people who aren't joining themselves to a church and i'm watching them suffer because the blessing that could be theirs is not theirs but i, mm-hmm. I can't wake them up from that so I'm praying for them. I'm still preaching the same thing and just trying to be patient and kind to them yeah. along the way. And I think on a practical level, like let's say it's a woman who had that happen, um, getting at somebody who's reliable who's not, like a reliable woman, or if it's a man, getting a reliable man who's not an authority, um, I think to maybe help counsel them through that situation. You know, let's kind of talk about the hurt, the pain, point them to Jesus, and hopefully over a period of time, there'll be kind of a reevaluation. Because I've known some people, like, I mean, just because I'm a pastor, I'm like the bad guy. Do you know what I'm saying? And they're, already, they're just instinctively afraid of me. And I'm like, well, I'm just a dude. It's kind of shallow. Loves Jesus and the Jayhawks. I mean, there's not much to me. You know, but there's a... But that's a... <laughs> They don't say dude anymore. But I, I'm still I'm still the college student from the '90s in my mind. Um, 
Yeah, so I think it just takes some time and patience and try to bring them into some of the body life and, and let other people praise the leadership. You know what I'm saying? That there are good men. You can trust them. Just This has made me think of a concern that's risen up in my mind, and we've talked about it as elders. Mm-hmm. Um, we do push membership. We do want it to be meaningful. We want all that there. One thing I have started noticing in a few of our members is getting baptized and joining the church has taken precedence over does this person know Jesus. And I'm not trying to separate the two so much. What I am saying is if I'm most concerned you're not a member, well, the first thing is membership is just us affirming that you know the Lord. I just want to know do you know the Lord first? And I've had to push back on some of the, I mean, obviously I push membership, but I've had to push back on this idea of let's just get them dunked as quick as possible because it's like, no, 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 like we're, we're wanting to know this person knows the Lord. Mm-hmm. And if that's a reality, then if we baptize them or not, doesn't change if they're a Christian or not. Like that's, yeah. I'm not trying to downplay everything I think about membership, but them knowing Christ is way more important. And I felt yeah. like there's a little bit of a, a way that when you want to elevate those things, they my concern for you is you haven't let the church wet you yet. It's like, well, that has a context to it, and I don't want to skip that. Does that make sense? Sure. So how, how soon would you make somebody a member if they showed up at your church? Do they have a waiting period? Yeah, we, we offer a membership class, I think, every three or so months, every three or four, somewhere around there. Um, I would prefer people not come on their first day or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, if they did, I, we've never told someone don't come to the class. If someone has come to the class and it's like their second week there, we know to take our time with them. Um, because some people, you're just the rebound. Just wait a little while and they'll, they'll leave. That, uh-huh. Things aren't what they think they are. So it's not, we don't allow it to be a quick process no matter what. So uh, we try to help them that way. Yeah. Yeah, we usually recommend six weeks. But let's say somebody from your church coming to our church and they show up the first month, um, I guess we'd allow, when they're a like-minded church, to maybe speed up the process a little bit. Yeah. John, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think usually six months yeah. ago, uh, at least. And we'd love to at least get them into a membership class mm-hmm. um, where they know what we believe and we're full disclosure, this is who we are. You may think yeah. you know us and you need to hang around for a while and and kind of know what the body life is like so we don't lay our hands on very quickly yeah usually at least six months we had a um, family visit our church she was from georgia older lady so excited to find another like-minded church a guy from georgia all the everything stars are lining up you know and she said she was at work and she's lived in mcpherson for years and had never heard there's a cornerstone church in mcpherson she goes i love john hagee uh (laughs) We're a different cornerstone. <laughs> um, so it, uh, it's fun to let some of that clarity come uh, and not rush through it. So you talked about, um, you know, you have a, a brief statement, uh, uh, the, I guess the cornerstone covenant, right? So what do you do when somebody um, wants to join your church, but let's say they were baptized as an infant? Do you insist on rebaptism? Uh Yes, in reality, no. <laughs> um, we insist on baptism. Um, 
And I'm not I, like that's that's the way we try to explain it. Like, and I've had that conversation. There was an older man that left the PCUSA church in our town because the conservative pastor finally retired, mm-hmm. and he just couldn't stay. So he came, loved so much about our church, but just made it clear, I, I can't submit to getting immersed because I was sprinkled as a child. He's more than welcome to attend, but um, my understanding is I don't, I don't have the right to affirm people as part of the church in a way other than what Jesus said to do. So no matter how much I think this person loves the Lord, the Lord told us how to affirm that person, and it's through baptism, and I don't see infant baptism as legitimate. But I also know there are other churches that would make exceptions. Yeah, we would not make an exception uh, as far as accepting infant baptism. Okay. We you add anything to that, John? I'm going to pull a Kelsey lateral to Tony, and you can take that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a flag, and it'll. Flag. Yeah. You're you're not Tony, but sure. Anyway. Yeah, you, you have a much better handle on that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I prefer Rashi Rice. That was slick, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, Rashi Rice. That's okay. right. Um, I. Uh, you know, one thing we do is we teach our whole doctrinal statement, and before I do, I go through the theolog- theological triage that Al Mohler kind of presents, and. And it basically says there's some doctrines that are first order, second order, and third order. You know, so if you're in triage in the hospital, somebody comes in with a gunshot wound, somebody comes in with a heart attack, and somebody comes in with a, you know, a weird itch here, who do you treat first? It's not the first come, first serve, right? It's a greater priority on, on the person who has a more critical situation. And so I kind of explained that you know, to be a Christian, there's some things you have to believe. Right? You have to believe in the resurrection. You have to believe in the reality of sin, the judge, you know, atonement and the judgment of the cross, you know, the reality of, um, of, of eternal punishment you know, in whatever form that takes, um, the authority of the Bible, the necessity of repentance, faith and repentance. And then there's some things that you can't deny and be a Christian. So I think there's people out there who never really got the Trinity that are in heaven. Uh, they may not understand the hypothetic, hypostatic union, but they're not going to deny it. Uh, there might even be people who got saved before it was even formulated, and if you were to present it to, let's say, Peter, he would say, yeah, that's it. Um, so I kind of divide those categories, and then I kind of go into second-order doctrines, and some of those would be women in ministry. And, and, and a second-order doctrine, like you can believe it and still be a Christian, but it'd be very difficult to minister side-by-side side with that person. So women in ministry, uh, you can be a Christian and believe that because you still affirm these first order doctrines, but it'd be very difficult for me to serve side by side and join a church that has a different view on the issue. And I'd put baptism in that same category. Then you have like third order doctrines, like maybe the timing of the rapture, some other things, maybe how you interpret certain passages. You can serve side by side with those. And so I always tell people, um, it's okay if you disagree with us on this issue. We're not saying that you're not a Christian. Um, but you need to go to a church where you can live out the fullness of your conviction, and this is not your church. And so it's kind of like, we love you, brother. If you change your mind, we'd love to have you. But, you know, the baptism, like you said, it's, you know, something that we feel pretty strongly about. And we used to be Flint Hills Christian Church, by the way. So part of the restoration movement. And so uh, we try to shy away from anything that suggests baptismal regeneration. Uh, is important. Um, I think if somebody 
is baptized as an infant, in their mind, they're not rebelling. They believe that they've been obedient to Scripture. We would just say you just misunderstand that Scripture. Um, now, yeah. Well, I was just going to say that also that issue in particular affects our understanding of who our church is. Yeah. So our church is either 131 members or it's 266 people counting their kids. Yeah. Um, that's a huge difference. Yeah. And am I training my kids to act like the Christians they are or else they'll be disciplined out? Or am I witnessing to my kids to pray and hope they come to yeah. fear the Lord one day? That's, those yeah. are monumental issues. Who has access to the table? Yeah. All that. Yeah. And so it's a big deal, but it's not, we're not saying you're not a Christian. Right. And so that's kind of helps soften the blow where I'm saying, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying we're on a different page here and you probably need to find a place where you can worship. Like if somebody's Pentecostal, sooner or later, they're going to feel like our church is dead to the Holy Spirit. You know, so I'd recommend them to another church or women in ministry. So that's just um, how we've kind of navigated that and, that. and that's how we kind of introduce it in our membership class. We also in the membership class address if there are disagreements you have with the what we believe statement that you're supposed to affirm. You're not going to help anyone by going group to group to explain why that's wrong, and you're hoping to overturn that. Yeah. Um, and so I just ask people, please don't do that to us. Mm-hmm. Um, if you disagree, just be up front and go somewhere else. So we're not wondering what conversations are going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Any questions from the audience? We're good so far. All right. So please give ideas on how a church can that views pastors. How, a church, how can a church that views pastors and elders as differing in function move to a model where both are functioning as shepherds? You kind of shared why this is kind of near and dear to your heart, the, the deacon story at your church. Yeah, at First Baptist in Georgia, um, where I worked for three and a half years, um, well, first of all, they had single pastor-led deacon function as elder type thing. It's, it's your normal setup in that stereotype, you know. We would literally have deacons who would skip church to come to the deacons meeting after church. Like, it's just like there's a, there's a possession of authority in that situation that is not okay. And now, again, they need to fix the deacon-elder situation overall. But it's very common. Uh, and In our church, people will come from churches where you had the pastor's and you had the elders, and I'm not trying to get picky on what you call people. I'm just saying if you separate those in a functional way, you're, you're setting people up to not, um, I'm not trying to be strong, but not care about the qualifications because the qualifications require the overseers, the elders, the pastors to shepherd. Uh, and like we were saying earlier, one of the qualifications is to be hospitable. And a lot of times when, a, when an elder has authority but no shepherding responsibility, they're, they're most likely not hospitable either. Uh, they're probably not, again, smelling like sheep. So, yeah, it's personally important, but it, honestly it's just the, the Bible teaches that the elders are pastors, are overseers. And to split that up, we've now created a system in our church that, that Jesus has not established, and it's, it creates chaos. Mm-hmm. John, we have pastors who are not elders. I mean, how does that flesh itself out here? Like, I didn't become a, an elder until three and a half years into my ministry here. Maybe kind of walk us through your thinking with that. The thinking was that, or is that, 
you can have the formal authority or you can have the informal relational authority. So for someone to see you as a, as a shepherd or as an elder, they need to see that you're actually doing that and that you're functioning as that. You've built relationships with them. So that was kind of the thinking behind that. And it's getting the authority and the, the, uh, the power, I guess, too uh-huh. quickly without having established the relationship. So I'm not saying that's the way everybody should do it. Obviously, a pastor, if you're going to hire a pastor, you should be yeah. elder qualified. So there's some, like, that doesn't make sense. But trying to just flush out that functional, so relational, you, informal relationship you have with your sheep. Uh-huh. That kind of takes time to build. Takes time to build. Yeah, and I think there is a difference between informal and formal authority. Mm-hmm. Like, we hire, we have a youth pastor because we want our our young people to revere his authority to a certain extent, but there still is a little bit of a division between him and the elders, and, and he's not disqualified, he's qualifying himself mm-hmm. and proving himself, and in time, that's, we have every intention of making him an elder. Um, I don't think that's what you're talking, you're talking about. Yeah, even in your setup, yeah. using names, a lot of places, pastor means staff, and elder means a elder who's not on staff, or that, yeah. that happens a lot. Kind of the boss, the overseer. Well, yeah, yeah, but what I'm getting at is you guys don't split. You can be an elder but not shepherd. Mm-hmm. You're not doing that. Like, yeah. um, I'm not asking. I'm saying you are not doing that. Like I'm, yeah. that's, that's clear at Flint Hills. Their yeah. elders know the sheep and care for the sheep. Yeah. And so, yeah, you may call him an elder, not a pastor or whatever. It's like that's not what I'm trying to get into. Yeah. Um, they know the sheep. Yeah, it's not like the elder's job is to tell the pastors how to minister and shepherd. Yeah, yeah. They're doing it too. And so, yeah, that's something I definitely came across here, and and it was fine. It it also helps because as a staff pastor, um, if you set up a context where if Pastor Dave or Pastor Josh go visit someone in the hospital, but I didn't, and the church didn't go visit them, so now unless the Pope goes to do it, (laughs) it didn't count. It's like... That's, so we're trying, and I feel like it's it's worked where we've tried to prioritize taking care of sheep over who takes care of sheep. Uh-huh. And that's been so helpful just for our leadership. And it's been yeah. really helpful. Yeah. So here's a maybe a different topic. Uh, what has helped you to receive criticism humbly without letting it devastate you? John, go ahead. I just don't want to be an old king that can't be corrected. You know, that's in the scriptures. Like, when you're in ministry for a while, it's like um, you're not above it. So embrace humility. I also think of, I think it's Psalm 141, maybe verse 5. Something to the effect of, let a righteous man strike me. Let my head not refuse it. So there's just an invitation for that that I think just needs to to accompany us. I think any time we're, we're offended or easily offended, that just smacks of pride, really. So uh, away with that and enough of that, you know, for leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to invite correction from each other and get to the point where we're actually talking about this in Bible study this morning. Like, it should almost be impossible for us to be offended, right? Love covers a multitude of sins or perceived offenses. So so what's helped me is just like I I know I've goofed before and made mistakes and I appreciate it when people point that out. Sometimes they don't have it right. Yeah. But even then it's like 
well, I'm going to accept it. Uh, anything that humbles me is good for me. Yeah. And just look at probably people's motives are, they're probably good. So not try mm-hmm. to impugn their motive. They probably really mean well. Sometimes they're right on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know um, John Piper has these uh, biographies that he does at the Desire and God Pastors Conference. And one that was really helpful for me is the one on Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was probably one of the most um, heavily criticized men who ever lived. I mean, every sermon was picked apart. He had all kinds of theological rivals and everything. And, and, um, and, he, and John Piper talks about how criticism can kind of create a fun house where you start to see yourself um, through the eyes of your critics. His sermons are too deep. Nope, his sermons are too shallow. So what is it? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and he talks about a carnival of mirrors, right? You're too, too fat, too thin. What are you? And, and so there, there can be a danger, I think, when you start to see yourself always through the eyes of your critics. And I think when you're in pastoral ministry and you're preaching and stuff like that, that's often... Everybody has like an idea of how the church should be run, and they think shaping you towards that end is their service in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? And, um, and they can almost weaponize humility. Like if you were humble, Pastor Dave, you, you would actually accept this correction and apply it. Do you know what I'm saying? So I see other pastors nodding like, yeah, been there. But I think there's a place for, you know, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, I can't be taller than I am. I can't be short. You know I'm saying? This is just who I am. Um, having a strong sense of what you've been called to. And I think there are some people, um, there's some people who want to like try to shape you to get what they want. And then there's other people who just really care about you. And those people like, let a righteous man strike me. Well, a righteous man can strike me because they're righteous. Um, but I think there is a place, and I just say this for pastors who want to keep their sanity. There is a place for saying, you know, this, this person has an agenda. And if you have a question about it, you take that criticism to the righteous man who knows you and say, well, what do you think about this? And they might say, it's trash. Don't listen to them. Oh, good. I'm glad. Or they'll say they might have a point and nuance it. So that's why I think uh, part of it is if you don't trust a person criticizing you, find some, take that criticism to somebody you can trust and see if they confirm it. I don't know. What do you think, Josh? Uh, before I forget, um, Joel Beakey wrote, Pastors and Their Critics. Um, get it. It's super helpful. It, it could be called Christians and Their Critics. Um, it's just really helpful for everybody. But one of the things, and again, I bounce a ton off of my father-in-law here. Um, one of the things that was really helpful for me was when it clicked in my head, I can lose conversations and it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And there's this older lady in our church, and she misunderstood the way I pray on Sunday mornings. Um, so when I'm talking to the Father and I talk about Jesus, I'll say He. I'm talking to the Father, and that's all I'm doing. But she took that as I'm talking to the people, and He is God. And she thought in my prayers I'm preaching to the people. It was just a bad understanding. Well, after about two or three times correcting, I realized 
I'm not getting anywhere here. And it, it clicked. So I'm 36, and this lady is more than twice my age. Um, I need older people to correct me. I need that. Now, she has picked a bad thing to correct me on. But if I, if I blast this, she'll never come back because last time she went, I didn't listen. And so in that moment, I remember it just clicked. Like, just lose this conversation and just say, you know, thanks for bringing that to my attention. Now, I'm, I'm giving you all, like, the bright spot. I can write a biography on other conversations that didn't go so well. Yeah. I'm saying in that moment, the Lord was kind. And it's like, okay, I'm going to need her to come back to me. If I make this miserable, she'll never come back. And then we'll be that young church that doesn't care about old people, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, um, I remember I just said, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'll think through it. Um, but can I pray for you? And that was the end of it. And I went to our other pastor on staff, and I was like, hey, we got to lose conversations. And we talked about it. Um, so it's, that was hard um, because she's wrong. And yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, she may still think I do the wrong thing today, but... My hope is in the future when I actually do have something she needs to come correct, she'll come do it because last yeah. time it went well. Yeah, and I think in this day and age where people are naturally suspicious of authority and when you presume to have like the kind of authority that God gives us over the church, if um, it can be very frightening, I think, to a congregation that feel like their pastor is beyond correction. And so sometimes taking those hits, losing those battles, I think you got a point. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, if you can fall on your sword um, in the long run, that would help them embrace the authority because they know that um, this is not just an ego trip for you. When you bristle at authority, when somebody brings it up, that's like the bad first response. So take it, receive it. doesn't mean you have to internalize it, but then I think take it to a trusted friend. And if that person is a professional critic, you know, there might be a place you know, if they're going around criticizing to other people, that you, you had to kind of call them into account for that. Other thoughts, John? I think that's about it. I mean, I, there is a place for understanding that as leadership, we yeah. often have more information than that person has, and just giving that to them, like they really don't know all the facts, uh -huh. and just being confident in the decisions we make, and despite some criticism, just understanding they didn't have to make the decision so they yeah. can be one way or another. But Yeah, and sometimes we can't give all the reasons why we're doing what we're doing. Can't give the reasons doing. for sure. Yeah. So how do you screen pulpit fill? Um, how much is too much? Uh, how is hearing from different but trusted voices healthy for the church? Um, we do... I think a healthy amount of pulpit swap um, in Georgia. Well, pulpit swap introduced that idea. I yeah. didn't hear about it until I heard you did it. Yeah, so what happened was um, one year, Shepherd's Conference, it hit me that I'm, I'm out here for a week and just this sermon I got to preach when I get back. What am I doing? And so one year I asked Kyle Sanderson, uh, where, Kyle's right there, um, I was like, hey, why don't we just swap pulpits when we get back that Sunday, which are you know, church leaders were on board with that. And so we've made that almost an annual thing. Um, and then there's been times where we've swapped mm -hmm. on Sunday morning. Yep. Um, and then like at our men's ministry, I usually try to get, I know Matt Cruz has come out, Bart Horton, you, several guys come out and, and do different things. So our church has really loved to see. So 
some people in our church have come from denominations that are just nosediving, mm-hmm. and they come from churches that had no connections or anything like that. So they've been really encouraged to see a, a church they love have other connections to other churches that are doing the same thing we're doing just somewhere mm-hmm. else. And yeah. so the Ironman Network has been a huge help for that. Um, so, yeah, we swap randomly, and I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't have, like, a, a way of gauging how often is too often or anything like that, but... Mm-hmm. I did have one deacon say he loves it when other people come preach. <laughs> what he doesn't know is that we take our best sermon for the last five years yeah, and preach it yeah, at your church. Yeah. <laughs> I know, John, what do you think? We, we've had these conversations. I think it's kind of an informal standard. I wouldn't even know where it's at, that we have certain expectations for somebody that comes and fills the pulpit, uh-huh. that they're... They're a good teacher, good preacher. They're rightly dividing the word. Yeah. They're a good expositor. They're trustworthy. They're proven. Yeah, we we have pretty high standards for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, one of the big discussions in the blogosphere this past year was a book that came out last, I think, September: "The Great Dechurching of America," and just how um, houses of worship, membership in houses of church worship, have have declined. Uh, it's below fifty percent for the first time. And the number one factor in people like not attending church is they move and they don't have a new church to go to. And it's a pretty easy fix. So I have two children who moved to Lawrence and I told them, I know what church you're going to. I told JD, my children are going to your church and his church has done a wonderful job of welcoming them, right? Uh, I was talking to the guys at Summit Woods. I have a daughter who's going to go up to Kansas City for college, and they're like, well, bring her to our church. I, I love those conversations. You know, so there, there is a place where kind of expanding the network, having other pastors in, hearing that it's not just the pastor here, it's pastors everywhere who have a high view of God and a high view of his word. It's just a real healthy dynamic for the, for the body. And we do have a somewhat mobile society. Uh, we've exported people to your church, haven't we? Yeah, Sherilyn, right? My wife. And your wife, yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, and, w- and we have a college in our town, so naturally we are going to export people. So I think exposure to the greater body of Christ, knowing that sometimes people will have to leave and they know what to look for, has just been really healthy. I think it's great to have other pastors come in, tell your church we're not oh, the yeah. only church, we're not the, we're not the best, we don't think we're the best, there's other believers out there. This, this thing here that we're doing yeah. gives, gives a great... Uh, network for you guys to call on as pastors and healthy. We are blessed in this yeah. region. It's an unusual yeah. situation. Yeah. The other thing we we've done that helped, and we haven't done as much lately, just because other stuff has eaten in our time. But at our members meeting, family meeting, uh, I would meet with another pastor in town that I could at least say is a a gospel brother, you know, um, and ask him how can our church pray for you, and we would do that. So our church would hear us in those family meetings praying for other churches and one of my favorite things with that was one church we prayed for a few Sundays later their pastor retired and came and visited our church his first Sunday in retirement wow um so it was just fun for our church to see like hey we prayed for you guys and that helps cut down on some of the we're the we're the only show in town type thing um yeah why is that a bad thing um I mean obviously I think we're the best church in town or I wouldn't go uh (laughs) 
So there's a sense of everyone goes to the church they feel like is the best church, but I don't want people to think we think we're the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, there are genuine Christians that will never agree with us on certain things, uh-huh. and the Lord will take care of them elsewhere. And um, it's just a it's a way to practice. Like I, it's a way. Uh, let me say it another way: if people start to think we're the only show in town type thing yeah then anyone who doesn't go must not really be a christian and i've had that conversation so many times with people it's like yeah my coworker, i told them what was wrong with this church and they kept going i thought they loved the lord no 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 and so we want to encourage people where they're at if we can and not make attending or joining cornerstone the door to the kingdom of god yeah john when we left the church that it was in, the one we were, you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much this is the way. And everything yeah. else out there is bad. Don't read books from other, from other authors or go to Christian bookstores. Mm-hmm. And so when we came to this church here and looked around at some other churches but ended up here, very soon we were excommunicated. We were mm-hmm. kicked out of, of the church. Yeah. So that that's like pride. Yeah. And it's just not a universal church kingdom view yeah very unhealthy for people to think that way very dangerous yeah and i think you know any church that preaches the gospel and i'd even say any church that takes a stand on gay marriage because that's kind of like the question like do you fear the lord where you land on that question is very telling so i think any church that does that is like you know we're on the same team and um, i think there's something godly about just celebrating the success of others and if you kind of create this provincial, we're the only church in town, at least to a kind of self-righteousness that is ugly to other people and ugly to God, right? And so that's why, um, hey, we disagree. We love you. You'll, st- you know, the, for me, like the judgment seat of Christ is kind of refreshing because I don't have to judge other churches. You know, those elders are going to give an account. We're going to give an account. So I'll let mm-hmm. the Lord be the, and that's not too excuse being discerning or and other things like but if they're a gospel church and they're taking a stand on some of those key issues i mean they might disagree with me on predestination they might think the earth is billions of years old but you know, i could still rejoice that the gospel is being preached so well i think that's it um let me go ahead and pray uh thanks again for joining us and, and thank the these guys for their work So I know we have a big day tomorrow for those of you who are going to stay over. I want to encourage some of you who are spending the night with your elder team, digest, talk about these things, and hopefully there'll be some fruit. But let me pray, then I'll let you guys go. Well, Father, I do thank you just for the, uh, the men here in this room who want to please you, honor you, and uh, grow their churches to be more of a family and a reflection of the household of God. I pray that the wisdom that was passed along here as long as as well as the biblical teaching will be just animated by your spirit into ideas and plans and um, and strategies and and teachings that will help all these churches represented by these dear brothers um, to become uh, a true manifestation of the household of God so that you will be glorified in each of them. Thank you for Josh, and thank you for John, and I thank you for all the the volunteers and the cooks who helped pull this. Uh, Shepherd Summit together. And we pray that we will sleep well tonight, those of us who are going to the uh, Ironman Summit, that will be refreshed by the teaching and the food and the fellowship. Thank you for just a spiritual privilege of being with our brothers. In Christ's name, amen.